there. We're going to take some time to dwell in these wonderful, famous and radical words of Jesus known as the Beatitudes. And the reason for doing so will, I hope, become clear this morning as we go on this morning, as I give a, something of, a, of an introduction uh, to these words before we start looking into these statements as individual statements. And so if you have a Bible to hand, uh, I'd love it if you could turn with me. <clears throat> And we're going we're gonna to turn to the Beatitudes. They can be found at the beginning of chapter five, Matthew chapter five. But we're going to just jump back into Matthew chapter four, uh, just to give a little bit of context. And we're going to read a little bit beyond the Beatitudes as well, again, just to give us, give us some bookends, I suppose, to these wonderful statements. And so we're going to start in Matthew chapter four and verse 23. And I normally read from the NLT, the New Living Translation, but I'm, but I'm going to read from the NET uh, this morning, the New English Translation instead. And it says this, Matthew 4, verse 23, Matthew writes this. Jesus went throughout all, the, all of Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of disease and sickness among the people. So a report went out about him and spread throughout Syria. And people brought to him all who suffered with various illnesses and afflictions, those who had seizures, paralytics, and those possessed by demons, and he healed them. And large crowds followed him from Galilee, the, 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 the Capolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan River. And when he saw the crowds, he went up the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. And then he began to teach them by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil things about you falsely on my on account of me rejoice and be glad because your reward is great in heaven for they persecuted the prophets before you in the same way you are the salt of the earth but if salt loses its flavor how can it be made salty again it is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled on by people you are the light of the world a city located on a hill cannot be hidden People do not light a lamp to put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to the, all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before people so they can see your good deeds and give honor to your Father in heaven. It's a great passage of scripture, uh, but I can't help but read that passage. And I can't help but ask myself the question what is Jesus on about? What is he on about? I don't know if you've ever asked that question when you've been reading some of the things in the Gospels that Jesus says, or maybe even when you've picked up the Old Testament and other parts of the New Testament, maybe in Paul's writing or Revelation, and you've asked yourself that question, what is this on about? What is it on about? It's not a bad question. I needed to know that. If you ever asked that question, it's not a bad question, and it's not a blasphemous thing to ask. It's not a disrespectful question, and it's not a question that emerges from some lack of faith from any of us if we ever ask that question. It is always, always the right question to ask. Whenever we pick up the scriptures, it's always the right question to ask. What is this on about? 
especially when it's a passage we're so familiar with, we're so used to hearing, we've maybe heard spoken about so many times, especially if it's because we are very prone ourselves to carry into the scriptures our, our own mindsets or our own opinions or, or our own cultural ways of thinking. So it's always important that we ask the question, what is this on about? What is this on about? It's, it's very easy, I think. And, and I've heard this said, and I'll come to this in a, in a quick moment, but it's very easy for us to assume that we'll be able to pick up the Bible, read it, and just straight away make sense of it. I don't know if you've ever felt that impression, but we just assume that we'll be able to pick it up, read it, understand it, and it makes sense. And it's a common thing to think that a number of months ago, I shared on social media an, ex, an extract of a book that I was reading at the time. And it was a book about the scriptures and about how to read them and how people understand them and how we use the scriptures. And a non-Christian friend of mine, a guy I used to work with, he, he commented on my post on social media. And he made a comment, something like this. He said this, it seems a bit odd. It seems a bit odd that something for the masses to follow is made so tricky to understand. That was what he said. It seems a bit odd that something for the masses to follow is made so tricky to understand. And he said that about the scriptures. He said that about the Bible. If, it's, if, if this is made for people to follow, why is it so difficult to understand? It seems a bit weird that. And his, and his comment is an echo I've heard people say, Christians say many, many times over the years. And, and it's this sentiment. The sentiment goes like this, that if God wants everyone to understand his word, Therefore, God wouldn't make it difficult for us to understand. I don't know if you've ever heard that or you've ever said that to yourself, that if God wants everyone to understand his word, God wouldn't make it difficult for us to understand. Now, I get the sentiment. I really do get the sentiment. But at the risk of sounding controversial, and I'm not, I assure you, I'm not controversial. That's simply not true. The Bible is a complex book. I don't know if it's just me who's ever, ever thought that, but it's a complex book. There are numerous times on a daily basis, almost, when I open up the scriptures and I can't help but ask myself, what is that on about? What is it on about? And I'm saying this to help people this morning. Because if we don't appreciate this, then we, we set up two potential problems, not just for ourselves, but for anybody else who's new to the Bible, whoever picks it up. And, and on the one extreme, if we, if we tell people that the Bible's easy to understand, then at some point, those people may come to a point when they genuinely don't understand what they're reading. But, but if they're constantly told, well, it's easy, then they might be afraid to actually ask the questions because they'll fear that some of us will judge the genuineness of their faith in God. And so we shouldn't set that problem up for them. And on the other extreme, if we think the Bible is easy to understand, if we teach that the Bible is easy to understand, then, then it stops us asking questions of the scriptures. It stops us thinking about it. It stops us critically looking at it. It stops us exploring it and studying it. And it just permits us to read whatever we feel at the moment that we feel or whatever we think at that moment to read those feelings and those thoughts over the text instead of seeing what the text wants to say to us. And that can be dangerous and it leads to all sorts of problems and it can lead to all sorts of misunderstandings. Some of them very serious and some of them quite comical. Uh, as, as Helen's already said today, today's my kind of first day officially. And that's because I, I finished work this past week and, and obviously people in work have been asking questions of me over the past few weeks about, oh, how's it feel? What's it going to be like? And, and one guy that I work with, a great guy, he came to me the week before last 
And he was asking me about what it feels like to leave the world of engineering and kind of enter into the world of ministry and what that would mean. Now, he's an atheist guy, but part of the conversation that we had during that conversation, he revealed to me that he'd been listening to an audio book, an audio book version of the book of Ezekiel. Atheist guy sat at home listening to an audio book of the book of Ezekiel. Now, some of you might be very excited about it and think, what a great thing. But I will be honest with you. I was nervous, very, very nervous of all the books to start with. Ezekiel is a big, big, you know, interesting book. Let's just say interesting. So he, it made me nervous. But then after that, after saying that to me, he then turned around and said, I just don't get it. I just don't get it. It's weird. What is it about? And suddenly that nerves in me suddenly kind of relaxed a little bit. And we had a great conversation and we bantered a bit with each other. Although he did share with me, he did share with me, he did say that he thought that maybe, just maybe Ezekiel was talking about aliens. That's what he said, especially when it comes to Ezekiel chapter one. He said, these beings with big wings and wheels and eyes all over the place. And he, is Ezekiel talking about aliens? Now, that, I, I, that might sound funny to us, but this is true. In the space of my 26 years of my working career as an engineer, that's the second time I have had a colleague come to me and say that very thing about the book of Ezekiel. How mad is that? Now, I'm not mocking my workmate here by mentioning that. Uh, I, I, I could see what he meant. It's a very strange image, isn't it? If you've ever read that, it's a very strange image. I could see what he meant. I didn't agree with him, of course. And we, we had some banter between us. We had a great conversation about it. But at least my work colleague appreciated how unfamiliar the territory was to him. That this is something different. This is something unique. He understood that there were questions to ask. That questions we're normal. What is this about? What is this about? That's such an important question. And if we regard the biblical text as sacred, then actually it's the best question we can always ask about it. What is it about? I'm reminded, I don't know about you, but we heard about it a few weeks ago, I think uh, at one point, it might have been in the family service, I can't quite remember, but I'm reminded of that story in Acts chapter 8 and verse 26 to 40, where Philip, led by the Holy Spirit, is, is brought to the side of an Ethiopian eunuch who, who happens to be reading the book of Isaiah. And Philip comes, against, comes up to him and says, do you understand what you are reading? Do you understand what you're reading? And at that point, the eunuch doesn't turn around. He doesn't turn around and say, of course I do, you nut job. Of course I do. God wants everyone to understand his word. Therefore, God wouldn't make it difficult for me to understand. Now, do you want Philip and try and hitch a ride off someone else? He doesn't say that response. The eunuch's answer is the best sort of answer. He turns around and says, how can I without some help? How can I without some help? And he then asks Philip, what is Isaiah talking about? In other words, what is he on about and then Philip teaches and he helps the eunuch to not only understand Isaiah but he also helps the eunuch to understand the text of Isaiah through the filter of Jesus's life death and resurrection and I love Philip for doing that and I love the eunuch's honesty and I love 
his approach. So to be frank with you, to be honest this morning, if you ever want to teach the Bible, if you ever want to preach, and I notice that many of us here have done it, if you ever want to do that and you stop asking yourself the questions of what Moses is on about or what Ezekiel is on about or what's Jesus on about, then I'm not convinced you should be teaching the Bible. That question is so important. I want to help you this morning. I want to assure you this morning that if you are someone this morning in our meeting or listening to this later on YouTube, who does find themselves asking those very questions, then I want you to know you are asking the right questions and you are on good footing and that you find yourself in very good company today because you will not be alone in this meeting. I know I'm one of those and there's many of us here today who ask ourselves those questions. In what we've just read, in Matthew chapter four and through to five, Jesus and what he continues to say in the rest of this Sermon on the Mount, as it's famously called these passages, he's going to cause people to wonder about what he's talking about. And at the same time, Jesus is also challenging people on what they believe, what they think, what they already think they know about the kingdom of God and what they know about the law of Moses and what they think they know about the words of the prophets. And on some level, Jesus' sermon about the kingdom of God is going to hit his audience again and again with the implied accusation that they have not wrestled with the question of what this is about often enough or deeply enough. Which brings me back to what I've said at the start. What is Jesus on about? What are these Beatitudes on about well let's start let's start with what they're not about so it's worth saying firstly Jesus is not giving his audience a list of things they must do or become or character qualities that they must live out in order to earn salvation or to enter the kingdom of God these are not a set of ethical demands these are not a grocery list of moral imperatives this this is not some eight-step freedom in Christ course in other words Jesus is not saying to people that to get into the kingdom of God you must become poor or you must be in mourning or you must be persecuted the only to do if we're going to use that word to do because it's a strong word that word to do the only to do in this list is to rejoice be blessed and be a blessing. We'll come back to that in a minute. And that secondly brings me to a prop, another issue that we need to that can easily understand mis misunderstand. How do we understand this word blessed or blessed? We'll look into the word Jesus actually uses in a, in a couple of weeks' time. We'll come back to it. But for now, let's just say it could be translated as happy, or it could be translated as joyful, or another word that I really love. It could be translated as ecstatic. Happy are those who. Joyful are those who, ecstatic are those who. However, we've got to be careful. We have to really be careful about what we think Jesus is relating this happiness and this joyfulness to. If read the wrong way, if read the wrong way, happy are those who mourn, not only sounds deeply offensive and insensitive to grieving people, but it also sounds like a bit of a contradiction, doesn't it? Happy are those who are not happy. That doesn't quite sound right. If we misunderstand it, if we read it the wrong way, if wrongly understood, the words happy are those who are poor can be harmful and it can be very callous and it can lead to us propping up conditions of poverty instead of actually working to dismantle those causes of poverty. And he needs to understand this one that Jesus is not in this in these statements applauding poverty or endorsing the factors that create 
poverty. Jesus is not cheering on injustice. Jesus is not saying that persecution is a good thing. Jesus is not saying to those who are mourning loss or suffering or discomfort that they should stop grieving, get over it, just start laughing and throw a P-A-R-T-Y. He's not saying that kind of thing to him. Jesus is not saying that a beautiful life is one that contains injustice, hate, oppression, heart-wrenching grief, and abject poverty. Jesus is not saying that because, because none of that is a beautiful life. None of that is a beautiful life. There's nothing in any of that that is about God's dream for humanity or for creation. See, the poor in these passages are not blessed at being poor. The mourners are not happy because they are mourning. They are blessed because they've glimpsed. They have glimpsed and they've understood something of the ethos, the priorities of the kingdom of God that Jesus is announcing. And so to those who are poor, to those who are mourning, to those who are hungry and thirsty for justice, the coming of the kingdom of God is good news. It's good news. And they rejoice because they recognize that God has seen them. God has heard them. God is identifying that with them and that the kingdom of heaven is for them. It is on their side. And that brings me to the third thing that we can misunderstand, the kingdom of heaven. What is that on about? Because some people, for some people, the kingdom is just is some far off, distant spiritual realm that we go to when we die. But as we mentioned and as we explored when we, we looked at our series in the upside down kingdom, God's kingdom is about now and not just then. There's something to it that's now, but there's also something of it that's still to come. In the Beatitudes, when you read these statements of Jesus, you'll notice that there's this both this present tense and this future tense in some of the ways that Jesus talks about the kingdom. So, for example, to the poor, the kingdom already belongs to them. And yet for those who mourn, they, are, they, they will be comforted. There's this past, sorry, there's this present and this future, or to put it another way, there's something of it here, something that has come with Jesus, and yet there's something of it yet to come. But in either case, it's not about us going there, but it's about it coming here. And we should know that. We should know that because in, as another part of this Sermon on the Mount, if you flick forward a chapter, You'll come to the Lord's Prayer. And in the Lord's Prayer, we are taught by Jesus to pray for God's kingdom to come on earth. Let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. We can get so very familiar with those words. And we pray that. The reason we pray that is because, as, as the New Testament scholar John Dominic Crossan wonderfully puts it, we pray that because heaven's in great shape. Earth is where the problems are. Heaven's in great shape. Earth is where the problems are. See, as these statements make clear, our world experiences poverty and oppression, hate and injustice, harshness and heartlessness, suffering and loss. And I don't know about you, but I believe the kingdom of God is, is a healing balm to all of that. We pray, Lord, let your kingdom come. See, God's kingdom is for the earth, for a transformed earth, a restored creation, the kingdom of heaven. When we use that term, it points to a world order, a world order in our world where God's passion 
God's dream for the earth is, is a present and visible reality brought about by God. It's, it's what life on earth would be like if God were king and the kingdoms of our world were not kings. And what life on earth would be like when humanity really stepped into its vocation to reflect the image of God. When the world, as the prophets really looked forward to, when the world is full of the knowledge of the glory of God. And our response to this kingdom, our response is not just to spectate. We're not just to wait passively for it. We are to welcome it. We're to join in with it. We're to collaborate with it. We participate in it. We're, we're to embody God's kingdom rule on earth. And that's what it really means to rejoice. To rejoice is not about applauding something as it, as it kind of passes by, like, like we're watching a fete or a parade or something like that. It's about marrying our lives to it. It's about joining the crowd that gathers in its wake and following wherever it leads. See, we are to be blessed by the kingdom and we are to be willing to be a conduit of that blessing to the world around us. To be blessed by the kingdom and to be a channel of that blessing to the world around us. And that's, that's what Jesus is on about. See, at the time of Jesus, when we read these words in Matthew 5, Jesus is speaking to his own people, a people who are desperately waiting for the coming of God's kingdom. Jesus is speaking to people who are poor in spirit, oppressed people, people in mourning, people hungry and thirsty for justice, people hungry for things to be put right, people longing for mercy, people craving to see God, to have God visit them in such a way that it would liberate them. They are people who are yearning, crying out for God to vindicate them, to justify them and to defend his children. See, at the time of Jesus, Israel finds itself under the rule of another kingdom, not God's kingdom, but under the Roman kingdom. And they're the latest, the latest in a long line of kingdoms who have occupied and subjugated the, the Hebrew nation. And their hope, the desperate hope is for God's kingdom to come. But they're asking questions. Where is God's kingdom at? What's it on about? Why hasn't it arrived yet? What will it look like? And is there something maybe that we need to do that we can, we can help make it come? or force it to come? Is there a way that we can make it happen? They are understandably restless. Now, I don't know if you've ever been restless. I mean, last week, Bruce talked to us about Abraham, didn't he, and his journey of faith. And there was many moments when Abraham faces famine. What did he did? What did he do? He got restless and he went down to Egypt and he made mistakes. Or when he was worried about how this child had promised this, this what God, this child that God had promised him would be this descendant who would, when he was worried about that, he got restless and he made a mistake and him and Sarah came with a re, an agreement with Hagar and, and problems happened. When you get restless, when people get tetchy, when we get panicky, we, we have a tendency to jump and just react. I don't know if you've ever done it in life, but I can tell you I have. I mean, I know the leaders over this past few months have given me time to really think about and process the decision of, of accepting their invitation. I, I didn't want to do it out of some quick jump reaction. I wanted to pray about it. But when people get restless, we react and we make wrong judgments. And they are a restless nation. 
And there's some people in that nation, parts of that nation, that are on the brink of lashing out against Rome. And they do eventually after Jesus' time. Parts of that nation that are seeking justice through the means of revenge. Part of that nation who are thinking that a military victory over Rome, if they could beat Rome in a fight, then it would prove to the world that they are God's children. Israel wants God's kingdom to come. And she's ready to engage violently in a power struggle to bring it in. But as Jesus tells them, it's not taken by power. It's given to those, it's given, and it belongs to those who are poor in spirit, those who are powerless. Israel is seeking comfort. In her mind, that means a national revival, and, and she wants to do that. She wants to heal her own wounds by inflicting wounds on others. But God's comfort comes to those who genuinely mourn, not those who maim. If Israel desires to inherit the earth, if she desires to inherit all his promises of God, then she must do it through meekness, as Jesus tells them, not dominance. Israel thirsts for justice, but justice, as, as I explored the other week and many weeks ago when we looked at Rizpah, justice and atonement is not a way of anger and vengeance, but as Jesus will go on to say in his sermon, justice, real justice and real healing involves the courageous tactics of forgiveness and blessing those who curse us and nonviolent resistance. Israel longs for mercy, she wants for mercy at the hands of her oppressor, but there's a temptation to her to show no mercy to her enemies. And yet, as Jesus teaches her later on in the sermon, that she's going to really have to learn to love her enemies if she's going to defeat the real enemy. And as if Israel longs to see God, but it's not about external purity. It's about this purity and this openness of the heart to what God is like and what God wants. Israel longs for vindication. She longs to be recognized as God's people. But if she wants to be recognized as God's children, and as Jesus tells us in the Beatitudes, well, God's children are the peacemakers, not those waging war. And so these are big, challenging words. Jesus is calling Israel back into its vocation. It's calling as God's people to be a blessing to the world, which is why at the end of these Beatitudes, Jesus then goes on to say, you're the salt of the earth, but you've lost your saltiness. You're the light of the world, but you're seeking to hide it. I love the way uh, Eugene Peterson in the, in the message translation, the way he translates uh, those verses, he, he puts it this way. He puts Jesus' words this way. He says, let me tell you why you are here. I love that. Let me tell you why you are here. You're here to be salt seasoning that brings out the God flavors of this earth. Salt seasoning that brings out the God flavors of this earth. But if you lose your saltiness, how will people taste godliness? You've lost your usefulness and will end up in the garbage. Here's another way to put it. You're here to be light, bringing out the God colors in the world, bringing out the God colors in the world. God is not a secret to be kept. We're going public with this, as public as a city on a hill. If I make you light bearers, you don't think I'm going to hide you under a bucket, do you? I'm putting you on a light stand. Now that I've put, set you there on a hilltop on a light stand, shine. Keep open house. Be generous with your lives by opening up to others. You'll prompt people to be open with God. 
this generous father in heaven. I would love the way he translates that. So Jesus speaking to a people who have forgotten or lost sight of their calling to be a blessing to the world. I hope that makes sense. It kind of reminds me, and this is going to sound like the worst analogy ever. It sounds, it kind of reminds me of something in our house. Steph, Steph has a sweet jar in our house. I don't know if anybody in your house has a sweet jar or a cookie jar, but Steph has a sweet, sweet jar. She has an insatiable sweet tooth, worst sweet tooth in our house. That's not quite true. That's not true at all. That's actually me. It's actually me and Corbin. But Steph, too, has a sweet jar. And she's taken a sweet jar. And a number of months ago, we can't, on a regular basis, we kind of take a bag of furious flavors of hard-boiled sweets and we refill the jar with hard-boiled sweets. But there's been a problem. Uh, because I don't know if you've noticed, but the weather this past few weeks has been exceptionally good. It's been exceptionally hot. And those sweets in that sweet jar have not coped well at all. And so instead of, of many individual sweets, there's now this large, large lump of sugar is the best way I can describe it, stuck in the bottom of this jar. And so we've got these mint humbugs and chocolate limes and rhubarb and custard and blackcurrant and licorice have all kind of melted together in this homogeneous lump of sugar. Now you can pry one or two off, we've tried, you can pry one or two of the sweets away, but it just doesn't taste right. It's just, it's just not right. Now, admittedly, if you like chocolate limes, I don't know if there's anyone on here who likes chocolate limes today, but if you like chocolate limes, it's not that bad. But if you like me and chocolate limes make you want to be sick, then it's not, it's not pleasant at, at all. It's a horrible, horrible experience. And it's like that here. Israel, under the prolonged heat of her circumstances, aren't tasting the way that Israel have been called to taste. And they are at risk of losing their flavor. And they're at risk of leaving a foul taste in the mouth of the world. And that's true of all of us, all of us, under prolonged circumstances, under different conditions, under dis disruptive and difficult happenings. Uh, we can risk distraction and we can risk losing our flavor. If you want to taste like chocolate limes, that's great. But I'm not talking about chocolate limes. I hope you understand that. And it's the same thing here. In effect, Jesus is saying in the Beatitudes, if you're going to be the salt of the earth, if you're going to be light, if you're going to rediscover your vocation, if you're going to be God's people, then this is what it looks like. And of course, he doesn't stop here in the Beatitudes. It doesn't stop at the end of Matthew 5, verse 16. Jesus' message of what is supposed to look like continues in what follows, not only in what he teaches, but also in the example of his own life. Jesus, I'm trying to say this the right way, but Jesus perfectly displays the flavorsome collaboration of humanity and divinity. Jesus brings out the God colors and the God flavors of the world and that's what he calls his church to as well and so in short jesus telling his people israel then us now that this this is what we should be about it's not just us asking what jesus is about but jesus saying to us this is what you should be about this is what you are meant to be at and that's why we're going to spend some time over these weeks exploring these radical words because it feels not just because it feels it it is it is a new day for us as a church 
it's a new day for us. I'm looking forward to singing tonight. Like Helen said, it's been it's been 15 months before we, we've been able to get together and sing. But it's a new day. We've been we've been through a couple of difficult years, not just with the virus, but even before that. You know, and, and, and as we've entered in, if we're honest with ourselves, we are, we are different coming out of this lockdown than we were first going into it. We are different people. And some of that's good. Some of that maybe isn't so good. But, but I feel compelled that over the next few months, I want to kind of take some time, myself and the leaders, just to kind of lay down as a continuation of what we've already started with our mission statement and with the Upside Down Kingdom, but taking some time laying down the heartbeat, the ethos of and the flavours, I suppose, of who we're called to be and what we're meant to be at. And so we're going to take some time over the, over in the months and a few months time looking at our values and take some time looking at creeds and beliefs. But actually, the, I think the best start and place for us, as always, is Jesus and his kingdom. And so we're going to explore what we should be at through these Beatitudes. Because if we're really seeking the centrality of Jesus in our lives, in our church, in our community, in our world, then whatever we do has to carry the flavor of Jesus and only his flavor. Or as Eugene Peterson translates it, that we are to be salt seasoning that brings out the God flavors of the earth. We're to be light to bring out the God colors in the world. Or as Jesus is on about, uh, we are here to be blessed and to be a blessing to the world. Let's pray. Lord, we pray for your help this morning, Lord God. We thank you for these past few months. For many of us, uh, for all of us, I suspect it's, it's been a time to kind of reevaluate and reflect and to kind of look at our lives again in a new way. And, and some of us adopted patterns that are much more healthier than now than what we were when we went in. And yet we're a world of God in the midst of this isolation, I suppose, and in the midst of our circumstances, even in the midst of the happenings before the virus, Lord God, uh, that it's very easy for us to kind of under the heat of the moment, in the heat of our circumstances to change and to alter and not to carry the aroma and the flavor that you've called us to carry. Lord God, and we, we just want your help with that. And so Holy Spirit, we pray that you would stir up our hearts, that you would recover us. You're right, Lord God, what good is salt if it loses its saltiness, but actually we we know when you're saying those words that you've come to re-flavor that saltiness, Lord God. And so we pray that you would reflavor us today, that you would help us today, that you would reignite the flame and the light in our lives today, Lord God. As we, as we think about the future, uh, we remember that it's, it's not the past that is defining us, Lord God. It's where you're calling us to go, uh, that this is a new day for us. And we long, Lord God, as we've prayed so often, to make sure that our center is you in everything we do, Lord God. And so, Lord, we pray. We pray that your kingdom would come and that your will would be done, not just in our lives and in our church and in our community, Lord God, but in our world as it is in heaven, Lord God. In Jesus' name, we ask that and for your glory and for the, for the glory and, and the spread and, and to be able to reflect your kingdom in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.